We'll go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Mark chapter 9, verse 30, where we'll, be, we'll, where we'll be continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles underneath the seats around you, you can find our passage. theme of Christ's identity and therefore his disciples and how they are to act in the world. Taking a closer look at what Jesus taught his disciples during his short ministry, it's kind of like going back to just the ABCs of Christianity. Well, my prayer for us is that whether or not this teaching from Scripture is new to you, you would feel the encouragement of Christ in your own life as he sets the example for his disciples in our text this morning. Let's read our text together now. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. At first glance, this teaching may seem a bit sporadic, as if the author Mark just inserted a number of Jesus' teachings into these paragraphs without a whole lot of cohesion. But I think as we go through them, you'll find that there are some central themes connecting all three paragraphs. And of course, we should keep in mind that Mark is not the only author, but he was the agent by which the Holy Spirit recorded and ordered these events for us in Scripture. So if you're taking notes today, I'll give you the main idea of the text for us up front. The main idea is this. The way to follow Christ is to be like Christ, and the way to be like Christ is to be a servant of all, especially other Christians. I'll say that again. The way to follow Christ is to be like Christ, and the way to be like Christ is to be a servant of all, especially other Christians. 
Just keep that in the back of your mind as we go through the text, and I think that instruction will become clear. Point one. This is just going to be covering verses 30 through 32. Remember Jesus. Point one, remember Jesus. And I say that because these first few verses are the perfect summary of Jesus' purpose here on earth. And this was veiled in the first eight chapters of the book, while Jesus gained an initial following through authoritative teaching and working great miracles. But now this is the second time that Jesus has told his disciples specifically what's going to become of his life. I can't remember if I mentioned this when we went over his first passion prediction, uh, but this is the second of three in chapters 8 through 10. And and Jesus tells them exactly what's going to happen, that he's going to be handed over, killed, and three days later rise from the grave. And if you want to write down the references, they're actually really easy to remember. It's chapter 8, verse 31. That's the first prediction. The second prediction is chapter 9, verse 31. And then the third prediction is chapter 10, verse 33. And 34. But it's almost the same verse in every chapter. Uh, one thing you might have noticed so far in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is very tactful about uh, when he teaches his disciples and where he teaches them. You can see in verse 30 that he didn't want anyone to know he was passing through Galilee, which is a little odd because Galilee has basically been kind of Jesus' home base for his ministry. He's already had a flourishing ministry there. So why would he try to stay on the down low? Well, verse 31 tells us in the first word, for. It communicates purpose. So it appears that the reason he didn't want to draw attention to to himself in this instance was for or because of this very important thing he was teaching the disciples, that the Son of Man must be killed and rise again. Now, you might be wondering, if this was the main reason that Jesus came, why didn't he just tell people about it? Why did he hide it? Well, I think the reason for that can be found in the responses of the disciples, who clearly don't know what to make of it. In chapter 8, the first time Jesus makes this prediction, Peter actually takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him for it. Because the idea of the Son of Man, the conquering judge over the earth, being killed would just seem impossible. And so Jesus is careful to teach them privately not giving more than what they can handle. One thing that's been true as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark is just the fact that the, the Holy Spirit gives understanding. right? And we, we notice that because the disciples have been in desperate need of it. We remember that, I mean, if, if they're Christians, it's unclear because a lot of these things don't make sense until after the resurrection for them when the Spirit is given to them. But if they are, they're like infants in the faith. You know, babies, when they begin eating solid foods, they can't just jump immediately to eating harder foods like tacos, for example. Uh, They have to start out with things like yogurt and applesauce and purees. They don't even have really the teeth to break down the food or the digestive tract to handle harder food like that. Well, just like that, the disciples, they don't quite have the spiritual teeth to understand or to grapple with Jesus' teaching at this moment. But he teaches them nonetheless. That's why it says they didn't understand in verse 32. Their ideas of the Messiah was so different from Jesus that they just they couldn't understand and they were afraid to ask. 
probably because they've drawn such sharp rebukes, at least Peter did previously. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, when he rebuked him. Uh, He also called them faithless generation. These are not mild rebukes. When I read these verses, I don't know about you, but I can't help but just think, how could the disciples not get this? It was so clear. To me, it seems so easy looking back. But if you're tempted to think like that, like I am, then just beware of the kind of pride when reading the Bible. It makes little of the Holy Spirit who revealed these things in time to the disciples, without which we would not understand them either. When we study Jesus' first passion prediction in chapter 8, 31, I mentioned that the disciples' lack of understanding actually is a helpful sign of historic reliability for us in a few ways. First, no one inventing a religion would ever make such fools of their first leaders. The disciples, they constantly miss the point on things. They're clumsy. And as we read in the next section, they're totally self-absorbed. It's not exactly the way that you would portray the first leaders or authorities of a religion you wanted people to follow. Second, their responses to Jesus each time show us just how far from their minds the idea of a suffering Savior was. This is not something that would just be thought up by Jesus' followers as a clever idea. Paul calls this folly, foolishness to the world. What was on their mind was a romanticized, ideological, political, and military leader that would conquer with force. I've already mentioned that there are two authors in the Gospel of Mark, the Holy Spirit and and Mark himself. So it's helpful anytime you're studying narrative-like events in the Bible to not just think about the events themselves and how they happened, but to think about who was receiving these writings. Mark recorded these events because he thought it would be useful to his audience. Mark thought it would be important for Christians to hear about this story with the disciples. And I think one of the reasons is to give them confidence that the death and resurrection of Jesus is no accident at all. But it was actually part of God's, un- God's plan unfolding from the very beginning. And we know that not only because Jesus predicted it so many times before it happened, but even in the way Jesus tells his disciples in this passage, it's clear. Look at the way Jesus communicates this message to the disciples in verse 31. He says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So here's my question for you. Who is the deliverer? Who is the one who is delivering Jesus into the hands of the men who kill him? He was not delivered by those who killed him. He was delivered to those who killed him. You know, the word used for delivered or handed over is used in the Greek Translation of the Old Testament, constantly to refer to God handing someone over into judgment. The answer is found in Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant that I think Mark must have had in mind. It says that he was smitten by God and afflicted. It says that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, and that like a lamb he was led to the slaughter and he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah 53, verse 10. 
That's what scholars sometimes call the divine prerogative. The Lord's plan and initiative in bringing the forgiveness of sins to His people. The cross was no accident, no sign of weakness. It was victory by defeat. So the application for us is the same as for Mark's audience. To remember the plan of God in the death and resurrection of Christ. To remember that He works all things for good for the people of those who love Him. That God, who did not spare His only Son, will graciously provide for all our needs. So we should remember Jesus. Next week we celebrate Christmas, the, the birth of Jesus, His coming. And friends, the birth of Jesus and His coming is only meaningful if verse 31 is true. If Jesus did not fulfill what He predicted in verse 31, then His birth would not mean anything for us. To point one, remember Jesus. Point two, act like Jesus. And this is verses 33 to 37. Act like Jesus. This comes from the disciples' poor example to do so. Mark tells us that they travel from Galilee on to Capernaum, and they enter into a house, the house. But we don't know exactly what house it is, whose house it is. Could be Peter's, like back in chapter 1 is what most people thought. Uh, But we don't really know for sure. The point, though, is that Jesus is going to have another private moment with the disciples. It's another opportunity, not just for teaching, but revelation about the kingdom of God. And this has got to be one of the most embarrassing moments for the disciples. I know I've said that multiple times through this gospel. Perhaps Jesus' rebuke of Peter was Peter's most embarrassing moment, but collectively as a group, this could be the disciples'. Jesus just asks them what it was they were talking about on the journey. And they're silent. They're afraid to admit what they were talking about because they were talking about themselves. Specifically, they were arguing about who was the greatest. I really actually love the topic of who the greatest is when it comes to things like sports. If you follow sports, you'll know the acronym, the GOAT, greatest of all time. Uh, Well, last night around, I think, 6 p.m., there was a journalist from ESPN that tweeted a rather controversial tweet. He said that the greatest, not only soccer player, but male athlete of all time was the Argentinian player Lionel Messi. But you can't just say something like that without providing some kind of backing or evidence for your statement. So he gave his arguments. He said the reason is because this is by far the most popular sport in the world, And it has by far way more participants in it than any other sport. It has over 250 million participants. And to be a player that has been dominant for nearly two decades requires greatness. Up to you to decide if you agree with him or not. The point is, when you're going to talk about who the greatest is, you have to provide some kind of argument, don't you? Well, I think that's what the disciples might have been doing for their own behalf here, bringing up their own statistics, evidence. They were debating. They were in disagreement with one another. just shows how little they understood about Jesus' death and resurrection when all they could think about was their own glory. All they could think about was that they were the special 12 followers of the Messiah. And so they were thinking, 
This is the right boat to be on. He's going to reign in glory. We're going to be first in line. And I just can't help but wonder how this dispute began with the disciples. And maybe you had Peter, James, and John who were selected to go up the mountain. And they held it over the other disciples. You know, we're the special ones. We're obviously Jesus' favorites. Maybe it was the fact that when they came down, the other disciples were struggling to cast out a demon, so they were holding it over them. Uh, Maybe someone like Levi in the group assumed that he would be the greatest because of how much money he would have given away in changing his profession to follow Jesus as a tax collector. Well, whatever the reason, the disciples are fixated on their own reward. And Jesus, knowing this, sits down to teach them. That's a, that's a teaching posture to sit down. Verse 35 has the first lesson about the kingdom. Jesus says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Commentators uh, note that in Judaism, or at least rabbinical culture in this time, it was frequently emphasized, the idea of kind of hierarchy, first in line, And so the Pharisees would boast about their greatness in obedience of the law in the kingdom of God. But Jesus here flips the whole idea of worldly greatness, that is, accomplishments, set-apartness, distinction from the rest. He flips it completely on its head. Jesus says that in order to become the greatest in the kingdom of God, you must become the least here on earth. To be first, you must be last. It's not just a confusing riddle for them to figure out. He's saying that in the kingdom, you're not measured by your deeds or accomplishments, but by your humility and service to others. Now, Jesus is not saying that doing great things is unimportant. He's not saying that you shouldn't try to do great things. But he's redefining greatness for us. He's redefining and teaching what greatness throughout eternity will look like. So, brothers and sisters, if you want to grow as a Christian, think about ways that you can grow in serving others. The Apostle Paul is a good model for us. He he considers himself the the foremost sinner, the least of all the apostles, and yet he is one of the largest contributors to Scripture. He encourages the Philippians, saying, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. He says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have you ever thought about your identity as a Christian, as being a servant, a servant of all? Do you see that one of your main jobs as a Christian is to serve others. And do you see serving others not only as a way to bless them, but as a matter of obedience to Christ? There are lots of verses to mention, but one of many is Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So to be servant-hearted and to put others before yourself sounds really good, but it's actually really hard to do. Uh, And the reason it's hard is because we love ourselves. (laughs) I love myself. Uh, We love ourselves so much, don't we, that Jesus used our own self-love as a way to teach us how to love others. He's saying to treat others the way you would want to be treated. 
You know, the word for servant is the same word that we use for waiters, waitresses, that wait on tables. And it's used that way in the Bible too. It's also the same word that later is titled for the office of deacon. And when the first deacons are selected in Acts 6, it's to distribute bread to believers. And so it's no coincidence that deacons are to be examples in the church of service to others. That's why in 1 Timothy 3, when it gives the qualifications for deacons, at the end it says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, if you ask me, I think we have really good examples of these kinds of servants in our church. Uh, We have uh, brothers and sisters like Paul and Maddie who serve behind the scenes to work out volunteers for child care, uh, for ushering. We have Roger who manages the website, Danny, finances and budget. Many of these things go totally unnoticed unless something wrong happens, right? Serving is not always attractive. It's not always fun or glamorous. But this is what Christ calls us to, putting others before ourselves. One more note on serving others. Serving others does not have eternal value if it's done with a hard heart. Uh, I don't know about you, but I would be reluctant to ask someone for a favor if I knew that Uh, they really didn't want to do it, and it would only make them bitter towards me. I grew up in a uh, pastor's home, which means that many times, many Saturdays, I was volunteered for things, like helping people move. Uh, My parents live in the mountains where there is lots of snow to shovel in the winter. So if you wanted to get out, you had to shovel your driveway. And there was one time where uh, I shoveled our driveway, and then my parents had me go and shovel a neighbor's driveway for a a sweet elderly lady. And she thanked me kindly and gave me what I thought was a very underappreciated amount of money for the service. (laughs) And just imagine if she said, thank you so much, and I said, well, I didn't really want to do it, but my parents forced me to. It's not exactly a good example of servant-heartedness towards others. Nothing sours an act of kindness like expressing a lack of eagerness to do it. But Jesus always engages the heart, so serving others involves not only the action of doing something, but the humility and the willingness to carry it out with joy. And then Jesus gives them a live illustration about what it looks like to be last and to serve others. He does this by calling a child in the house to come in the middle of them in the room. And he picks the child up. And as he does so, he says in verse 37, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So what can we learn from this? Is it just an example that Jesus loves kids? It's at least that. Um... Is it just that we are to have childlike faith to Jesus? That's true, but actually that's emphasized by another passage, not this one. I think to understand this, some cultural comments would be helpful. Because in our culture today, when most people think about children, what what things come to mind? Youthfulness, potential, preciousness, 
innocence, all of these wonderful, positive things. But that's not exactly how they were viewed in Jesus' day. When Jesus did it, it was during a time that uh, children, many of them didn't live past infancy or through birth. Uh, They're not able to do much until they become of age and are considered adults, so they wouldn't work. They're just there and kind of in the way. In some sense, you could even imagine they're less useful than the servants in the house. They're loved by their parents, of course, but they're not seen as important or, or useful for the society. They're seen as the least, the lowest, you could say. And you can just tell by the way that he calls the child in the middle of the room, there's just no way that a, chil- a child would normally be sitting where the, where the teacher is in front of him. That's where the adults sit. If you're a child, you sit in the back or off to the side. Jesus takes him, uses him as an example of the least in society, and yet he embraces him. In this example, the disciples are to be like Jesus in the way they care for others, specifically the lowest and the least in society. Notice what what else Jesus says in verse 37. That to receive someone in the name of Christ is to receive Jesus himself. Which means to receive other Christians is like receiving Jesus. This ups the ante a little bit on loving others, doesn't it? Don't just treat people the way you want to be treated. Treat people the way you would treat Jesus. Because receiving other Christians is to receive Christ. And to receive Christ is to receive God the Father who sent Jesus. Conversely, to act harshly against believers is to act harshly against Christ. It reminds me of the time that Paul was converted in Acts 9. He encounters the resurrected Jesus on the road, and uh, he's on his way persecuting Christians, you might remember. And Jesus reveals himself to Paul, then called Saul. And what does he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? That's actually not what he says. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? That's not what he says either. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so closely associates with his people that an act of kindness to them is an act of kindness to Christ. And Jesus even speaks on behalf of God the Father, saying that to receive Jesus is to receive God. It's an amazing example of one of Jesus' extraordinary claims. I love that John uh, is the one who responds in the next paragraph because I think this teaching in particular had a big effect on him. John, in his gospel, he records an event with the Pharisees where Jesus says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. And in 1 John 5, he says that those who say they believe God but they don't believe in Jesus call God a liar because they don't accept God's testimony about his son. You have to obey them both. You can't love God and hate Jesus or love Jesus and hate God. You can either accept them both or you can reject them both. Jesus is God's plan for redemption. He came and was delivered to be killed. And he was raised three days later so that we could have access and fellowship with God the Father. It's only by the blood of Jesus that we can draw near to God. Friend, if you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian, 
Uh, first, I'm so glad that you're here. There's nowhere else I'd rather you be. Uh, I want you to know that God gave up what was most precious to him because he loves you. So that your sin against God could be forgiven if you turn from your sin and trust in Christ. If you haven't done that, consider doing that today. Remember Jesus, point one. Act like Jesus, point two. Point three, show his kindness to other believers. Show his kindness to other believers. And yes, there's some overlap between the previous point and this one. But I think verse 38 through 41 only clarifies what we are, that, that we are to be especially charitable towards other Christians. Why do I say that? Because as Jesus is teaching them about receiving others in the name of Christ with the child, John seems to be recalling a recent interaction that the disciples had with a man who was casting out demons. And so he tells Jesus that they saw this, this guy, and we don't know who this guy is. The disciples don't know who this guy is. He's just a random guy. But he is performing a great work. And so they are alarmed by it, and they try to stop him from doing it. And so Jesus, almost immediately, tells them not to stop him. And notice the language of the disciples. He says they tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Again, this doesn't look too good for the disciples, does it? Maybe John was including Jesus in his thoughts. We don't really know. But to me, it sure seems like Jesus wasn't in the picture at that time. And the disciples hold themselves pretty highly, is what it seems like. They're concerned that someone is claiming to do things on behalf of Jesus, but he's not a part of their group. Not only do they compete among themselves about being the greatest, but they assume a great deal of self-importance as well, don't they? And so Jesus says, basically, why did you do that? Why would you stop someone from doing a mighty work in my name? Clearly, they're not one of our enemies. That's what he means when he says that the person doing these things won't be able to turn around and speak evil about him. He's simply saying that if someone is doing a powerful work in the name of Christ, then he is for the cause. He's not opposing them. The disciples seem to have a very narrow view of what following Jesus meant. And so narrow that they thought that anyone outside of their own group or their own context must not be doing the right thing. Now this doesn't mean, just to be clear, (laughs) this doesn't mean that anyone who is out there doing anything and simply saying that they're doing it for Jesus means that they're doing the right thing or doing it for Jesus' name or sake. People can use deceitful language all the time. Uh, Satan himself quotes scripture. Paul warned the Galatians about even an angel bringing another gospel other than the one he preached. But in this man's case, he's doing a great work in the name of Jesus. And if that's true, then he wouldn't turn around and speak evil of Jesus or else then it would be clear that he really wasn't doing a great thing for Jesus. Assuming the man is sincere and believing and following Christ, then he's on their side. He's not their enemy. And Jesus' encouragement to his disciples is to be tolerant. And I think that's instructive for us. It's just interesting that the founder of Christianity has a broader view of what his followers will look like than the disciples do. They're worried about others not following themselves. 
when they should rejoice to see that others are following Christ even if they're outside of their group, their inner circle. To translate that into today's world, I think we can recognize that God's plan for humanity is not dependent on just a few representatives of Christianity that have amazing ministries, many of whom I have benefited from you know, and been encouraged by, and you should be as well. But God's plan is to use ordinary local churches to spread the gospel, to build up believers, and to send out missionaries who will go and do the same. So by all means, be encouraged by larger ministries, but that's only one fraction of what God is doing. So to assume that someone who doesn't like the ministry that you like or is a part of a different ministry that you have a problem with is an enemy or opposed to you, I think is not Christ-like. Ordinary, unnamed Christians do the work of the kingdom all over the globe, and the Lord honors it. God does use larger ministries, and we should praise Him for that. But beware of Christian tribalism that looks down on others who have different viewpoints. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul rejoiced to see others build on the foundation that he laid. Uh, Paul even tells the the Philippian church. uh, He acknowledges that there are some preaching Christ for selfish gain uh, that he doesn't necessarily uh, agree with, but he rejoices that Christ is being preached nonetheless. That kind of charity given to other believers honors the Lord and will be rewarded in heaven. So Jesus is not saying that divisions between church denominations are bad or anything like that or difference of opinion. He's actually saying that we should show the love of Christ to other believers despite those differences. So for example, to state the obvious one, this is a Baptist church. Uh, I believe, we all believe, it says in our statement of faith, uh, that Believers who profess faith in Christ, credible professions of faith, are to be baptized after that profession by immersion, and we think the Bible teaches that. But we can rejoice that there are Presbyterian churches all over the world that preach the same gospel that we do. That's why we pray for other churches in the pastoral prayer every week. Uh, Because we realize that we're just one small piece of God's plan. Now don't get me wrong, I would love to see... Uh, all of the remaining empty seats full here at this church. But if I can't rejoice when our sister churches grow as well, then what does that say about me? Do I really care that Christ is glorified or do I care about my own glory? So then what do you do when you think someone sincerely believes they're doing the right thing for Jesus, for the kingdom, but they're actually doing harm? I think that's a fair question, but uh, just to point out, I don't think that's what Jesus is addressing. Even still, you could argue that that's sort of happening with what the disciples are doing. (laughs) They think they're in the right, doing things for Jesus first in line, and yet they're discouraging others who are doing works in behalf of Jesus' name as well. So I would just encourage you to look at the attitude of Jesus and the way he treats the disciples. He doesn't just rebuke them sternly. I think he knows what they talked about on the journey. He doesn't call them out for it. He doesn't interrupt their conversation while they're having it. He waits until they have downtime in private. 
and he teaches them patiently. He demonstrates a perfect model of humility. Here is the Son of Man, the firstborn of all creation. That's a title of status and kingship over all things. And yet look how he just patiently, again and again, deals with the blunders of his disciples. The disciples themselves think they're acting righteously, in power, achieving greatness, while acting uncharitably towards others who are not with them. So let me just encourage you, if you feel like others are in the wrong, use it as an opportunity to examine your own heart and keep it pure by guarding it according to the word of God. Don't allow your suspicion of others be a hindrance to being humility, to being humble. Now, you may not encounter someone casting out demons, uh, at least I hope. But you can be sure that you're going to encounter Christians that you disagree with if you haven't already. And the same kind of service and humility is required of us when we do. So the way to become great in heaven, to draw upon the previous verses, is to become less on earth. And the way that we serve others will be rewarded. You know, we get carried away about thinking, thinking big for the kingdom, big dreams. So we pay attention to numbers and large rallies and things like that. But let's not overlook the most basic responsibility that we have to love and to serve others closest to us. Now, maybe you're here and you feel like you just don't have the means to serve others. You know, you don't have maybe a large enough space to be hospitable. Uh, You don't have enough finances to cover expenses of other members in need, or you're not an employer to help someone else get a job. Don't consider small acts of kindness and service to others as inferior or unimportant. Jesus honors and rewards little acts of love towards others in the name of Christ. That's the point of bringing up the simple glass of water. Giving someone water in Jesus' day is basically the same as it is now. If you come to my house and you want some water, I will give you water for free. You can have it. I will not expect anything in return. It's common. We all need it. We drink it every day. It's the most simple act of kindness that anyone could ever think of. And Jesus here is using it as an example to say that even that, done in the name of Christ, will be rewarded in heaven. From the big things like casting out demons to the most simple things like giving someone a glass of water. So, friend, don't assume that you can't obey Jesus or be a a servant of others because you lack resources. There are so many ways that you can bless others. In in this church, I would say that your very presence here is a way to encourage and to love others. Singing a, a song loudly that you don't particularly like for whatever reason is a huge encouragement to the person next to you who maybe loves that song because they relate to the words because of their experience in life. If we're to be a church that seeks to love one another, then we must also be a church that knows how to be served. How to allow others to show kindness to us. Very practically, this means sharing our burdens with one another so that we can bear them together. Now, if you're here and you are able to bless others in larger ways, praise the Lord, uh, but protect your heart. 
and serve Jesus in doing so. Remember that Jesus elsewhere, in Luke 18, I believe, says that he who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I don't put a whole lot of thought into what I title my sermons. Uh, Maybe you've noticed that over the past number of weeks. I don't know. In fact, most of the time I just forget that a sermon needs a title for the bulletin uh, until just a few days before and I realize I'm the one holding it up. But I think the title of this week's sermon fits quite well for this text. It's titled The Greatest Servant, which is a play on words because of Of course, greatness is the subject of the debate with the disciples, and Jesus teaches them something new about greatness, that the greatest one is actually the greatest servant in the kingdom of God. But we can't move past this text without realizing that Jesus not only teaches about greatness in the kingdom of God, but he himself is the epitome of it. He is the greatest servant in the way that he came and dwelled among us, lowering himself, Taking on flesh, he performed the greatest act of service that humanity will ever know. He laid down his life for us. Greater love, no man knows than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. The author of Hebrews says that even though all things were subject to Jesus, he made him for a little while lower than angels and crowned him with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. We love because he first loved us. Only Christ's love for us can be our motivation for loving others. So the way to follow Christ is to be like Christ. And the way to be like Christ is to be a servant of all, especially Christians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word says that if we speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, we are just noisy gangs or clanging cymbals. If we have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but if we have not love, then we're nothing. If we give away all we have, if we have faith to move mountains, if we deliver up our own bodies to be burned but have not love, we don't gain anything. Help us to be patient and kind. Help us not to envy or boast. Help us to follow Christ's footsteps in these ways, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.